0: KCADV certification series, module five, part one, trauma response to emotional distress and crisis. We hope you review the materials that have been sent to you, or you can check out certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome everyone to KCADV Certification Series Module 5. I have a dear friend of mine in the room, Stephanie Ratliff with the University of Kentucky. We're going to break this up into two different sections. So this first section you're listening to, we're calling Trauma-Informed Responses to Emotional Distress and Crisis. Something I think that might benefit everybody who's tuning in because it certainly is something we come into contact with as we're doing our advocacy work out with our member programs. And as I was talking to Stephanie last night, she said, are we kind of kind of open with sort of a, you know, just sort of a check-in, sort of an emotional sort of grounding place, make sure everybody is aware and prepared that sometimes we're talking about some you know, some stuff that can trigger us, bring things up, you know, in us personally. And I said, huh, what a novel idea. Here we are doing advocacy work. Mm -hmm. And as typical, we often are the worst people at doing self-care and making sure that we ourselves are okay. So I was so thrilled that she brought that up. And I think this one we're sort of talking about is called coming into the present moment. So, Stephanie, I'm going to sort of turn this over to you to sort of lead us in a little bit of this conversation or mindfulness.
1: Thank you, Diane. You're welcome. And thank you all for having me and inviting me up to do this. It's my first podcast. So, you're looking good. Thank you. I wish
0: people could see you. Thank you. I will tell everybody listening in, you're looking good. Oh,
1: I appreciate
0: that. Of course.
1: So, as you said, I think this work is really difficult, and we're going to be talking about some heavier topics today, trauma, what that looks like, substance use, and it's important that we just kind of come into the present moment, as you mentioned earlier, and we're going to just kind of just settle in and get ready for these topics. So I want us to think about, and those out there listening, think about the last couple of days of your life and think at least about two things two good things that have happened and just take a moment to focus on those and let's let's um, then share those a little bit and Diane and I will share a good thing or two that's happened to us in the last couple of days so do you want to go first Diane or, be, or do you want me
0: to go? It makes, I, I'm happy to go if you want me to. Okay. I, I was thinking about it. Oh, good. Intro. Yeah. Good, good. And they're sort of small things, but they're not to me, right? And so one of those things in the midst of You know, crazy COVID pandemic at the moment. I have a thankfulness that my 91 year old stepfather and I meet every Saturday or Sunday, and we go to like a McDonald's or something, and we park under a tree, and we have a good hour and a half, two hour chat like every weekend. And so I'm really thankful that even in kind of our bizarre upside down lives, that he's healthy enough to do that. He's driving. Watch out if you live in Lexington. Watch out. But actually, he's he's really pretty good. So he and his little dog Gypsy come over and um and we just sort of have that really special moment. And then my other piece is my husband's birthday is today. So a little shout out to Ralph.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday, Happy Ralph. Happy birthday. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something though. Uh, you use the word small. And I think sometimes we fail to acknowledge that the small things that are good, when they all add up, and there's quite a few of them sometimes, we we need to know and just kind of think about the power of those. And it's one of the reasons I like talking about this when we get started, because there can be a lot of tough things going on. We can also be Debbie Downers and kind of focus on the negative. So it's really important to think about Even small things that are going well. So mine, if you don't mind me sharing, I just got to say, and maybe folks out there would think this is a small thing, but time with my dog on the weekends, sitting on the couch with Wilbur. Wilbur is great. With
0: Wilbur. I've not met him in person, but thank goodness for social media. I feel I know Wilbur.
1: Yes, he is lovely. And he just cuddles with me all weekend. And that's a good thing. You know, it's not like fireworks going off, crazy, awesome, like somebody got married or, you know, something like that. But it's, it's a good thing that happened to me. And then on Friday, I was working at home and a friend texts me and she says, check your front porch. I've left something for you. So I go out there on a break and open the door and she's put out this big gift basket of fun things. She's put Starburst in there and a glitter bath bomb, and it was just that surprise. It wasn't about the material thing she put in there, but it was about somebody thought about me and made the effort to come over and say, oh, I just wanted to give you a gift, and that's really nice. That's so.
0: nice. That's kind of the sweetest thing. You know, and there's yeah. sort of two things in that, you know, is we're sort of doing little takeaways that small things really can rejuvenate us in some very hard and emotionally charged work, but also probably the act of giving. It was small things, but I bet that made your friend's day too. You know, she thought about it and she planned about it and she she knew that knew that, that made you happy. And so mm-hmm. I think it's something for us always to remember too, that little giving and that little sharing can be great. That's so right. So good. That was nice. It was a good way to start. Mm. I am feeling very NPR-ish right now. Are it's you? It's the good thing. Yeah, I am. But that's kind of good. It's a, it's a goal for me to reach to. So, oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad so, I can help you reach you. your goals yep. this morning. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we're ready to dig in a little bit.
1: All right. Let's dig in. Okay.
0: Let's dig All in. right. So to remind folks, we're going to talk a little bit about emotional distress and crisis. Hope that that exercise maybe kind of replenish folks, but it also is something to
1: maybe use as you're working with individuals, Absolutely. That is something that you can totally, any survivor you're working with, trying to get them to come in and be present with you, whether you're doing counseling or getting ready to accompany someone to court, getting them to just kind of calm down or trying to and have them focus on what's going okay, instead of the things that are running through their mind. It's not that you don't want to talk about those either, but this is a tool that you can use with any of the folks you're serving. So
0: I think it's good. And in in any aspect that we're sort of doing that work, just to get people to get a little, breathe a little easier.
1: Mm -hmm. So the
0: first, I was looking at um, sort of the flow of past modules that have been done in person. And I think we always want to start a little bit with just sort of the conversation was a little bit on language and labels and diagnosis. And one thing caught my mind, but we can certainly go through them all, mm-hmm. but it was disability justice. Mm. Can you talk just a little bit about that? I think it's something, I don't know, I don't know that everybody's familiar with that term. Okay. Um, and I also don't know if if everybody's always has that up in the forefront of
1: the work that they're doing. So when we think about the topic of disability justice, it's really quite simple. And that is oftentimes when we think about a person, we don't talk about them in a holistic way. And often, especially folks who have an outwardly noticeable challenge physically, lay people and even professionals that work in social services or even the programs, domestic violence programs, may label people oh she's handicapped or for example uh, she's a deaf and mute well that doesn't really honor the holistic person most of us don't want to be labeled and so it's important to always put the person first not the issue that's going on so if I have attention deficit disorder, I don't want people to refer to me as that girl with the ADHD or that that ADD girl, mom, wife, you know, I'm Appalachian. I'm so much more than just the person who may have attention deficit disorder. So also it's just about being and acknowledging the rights of all people and making sure people feel worthy and that we treat everyone with dignity, especially in a field like this where folks have often experienced a lot of coercion, somebody else controlling their lives, putting them down. We don't want to be the people that do that when they come to us for services.
0: There's often an issue, too, when we assign meaning behind things, too. So if we say, oh, there's the ADHD you know, girl, you know, we sometimes put our own meaning behind what all that might entail. And we sometimes create a a person and a personality that is really not true of that individual. And it also... It also is fascinating to me. We, we were led in like a workshop group at a staff meeting one time and the uh, facilitator said, kind of list three or four adjectives that you think describe yourself. And it was interesting to me what they sort of put it, what different people put as number one, because I would have had it wrong. I would have thought, oh, this would have been the one that they really sort of identify with or define with. Right. But it really was, you know, that they were an ant. And I would have said, oh, I would have thought it would have been this other thing over here. So when we jump to the conclusion, what is the makeup of an individual? We can really begin that whole relationship kind of on a false note. Because you sort of use the example of the ADHD person, can we talk a little bit about diagnosis? There's sort of pros and cons of diagnosis in the field that we're working with. And then also I wanna sort of challenge advocates that are listening in. Most of us are not qualified to do diagnosis, but our community and this culture is really good at diagnosing people. And I say or they, that with, th- or I, they
1: think I they are. I say that with great sarcasm.
0: We're really good at sort of summing things up, and so as advocates and as professionals in this work, we really need to be careful to step back and not presume we know. Oh, this person's borderline, or this person's bipolar, or this person, you know, is a has addiction or substance use issues. We need to slow that down. But can you talk a little bit about
1: diagnosis? Yes, I'm so glad you brought up that topic. There's a lot of problems with diagnoses, and one of the main issues is, I think, especially with survivors of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, they're often incorrectly diagnosed. So when a provider sees them, maybe whether it's in counseling for the first time or maybe it's a provider in an emergency room they often are diagnosed with things there at the spur of the moment without their experience of intimate partner violence being taken into consideration. Because if your, you know, hormone levels and things are kind of raging or, and in reaction to the trauma that you've experienced, that's about trauma. That's not borderline personality disorder. That's not attention deficit disorder because you can't focus and you know really continue a conversation that's about the experience of having gone through abuse and violence and some providers are not good at teasing that out so they get stuck with just this run of the mill diagnosis so to elaborate a little bit it's really important to be centered on what the survivor understands about diagnosis do they use that language? Does it mean something specific to them? Does it help them understand what's going on? And so if they use that language, maybe it's okay for us too as providers and people who are serving them. But I think it's important to understand their view on that language. And understand that people have a wide range of understanding. I talk about it as a continuum of Do they use a diagnostic language when they talk about themselves, when they talk about their experiences, or do they not use that at all? And I think advocates should go along with what the survivor is doing, what makes sense to them. For some, it's helpful. You know, unfortunately, the way our system is, to get certain kinds of counseling paid for, through your insurance or your medical care, or to be able to receive supports like medication or talk therapy, somebody along the way usually has to make a diagnosis in order for you to access those resources. And we know that as providers, but it doesn't have to be at the center of what we talk about and how we describe the individuals we're working with. In fact, I don't know why there's even a need to even talk about it at all unless there's a real specific event going on or situation that requires that. Why do we have to slap a label onto everyone?
0: That's an interesting piece. You know, I, I never even really thought about that, of moving forward and having access to further care. Sometimes that diagnosis is required. It's one of my frustrations. We won't go off on the, that is, and that's a frustration, I won't go off on a tangent on this, but we were talking with Meg Savage a couple of days ago for a podcast on, on legal, civil and legal remedies. And it always sometimes can be frustrating to me that a person has to go through the court system to um, highlight other services so i need an escort order well to get an escort order you got to get the protective order well maybe the protective order might not be the best for me in my situation but that's what i need or i need a security system or i need sometimes you got to enter a system you didn't really want to to get the other services it might trail behind so that's an interesting statement that you made one of the things too that, that I noticed in our notes or the notes that you sent me is why can sharing experiences in the, in and of itself? Why can just sharing the experiences be helpful? And I thought a lot about this is a great deal what advocates do. And newer advocates, again, that I think might be listening in often feel unqualified to tap into the really difficult, messy trauma experiences that a a person is showing up at their door. So certainly the intimate partner violence, they might be adult survivors of child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. They might have mental health or they might have substance use issues. So a myriad of things. And here you've got this 24-year-old, brand-new advocate, or even an older person, but not as seasoned in the field, going, ah, you know, I don't I don't know what to do with all of this. But I liked that it says sometimes just sharing stories can be really helpful. And it, it made me think of our support groups that we do, you know, just the individual advocacy, how we can begin to reframe, you know, the resiliency that we see in folks, because a lot of people show up at our doors and go, you know here i am i'm 40 years old my children have been removed by the cabinet mm-hmm. i'm you know i've been in a 10 year abusive relationship i'm not feeling too good about myself right right and so sharing that with other women or men and having those experiences but also reframing of the strength that it took you to come in to the shelter so as an advocate stephanie like speaking to that kind of field of work. Can you talk a little bit about the power of just sharing and opening up and being safe to open up your personal life stories? I
1: think one of the most difficult pieces of having survived intimate partner violence is oftentimes you feel very lonely and isolated. You may not share your story with family, friends, if you go to church or another place where you worship. Sitting down and talking about what happens at home and the abuse and violence, you may feel ashamed. Not that you should, I'm not saying that, but the way our society works, a lot of stigma, a lot of shame. So there's not natural places to talk about what's going on. And when folks appear in shelter or just even for outreach services, it's important that we give them that opening and that invitation about what do you want to talk about and see where they go with that and encourage them to tell their story when they're ready, if they're ready, and in any way that they want to tell that story and be a listener. We need to know as advocates, it's very easy when you're early in this work to kind of almost have a cookie-cutter ac- approach A list of things that you want to tell every survivor you work with. or, But we don't want to be cookie cutter. We want to individualize to people. And we have to understand everybody's story is different. One common thread that many of them have, of course, is there's somebody in their life who tries to control and exert power, and they're just mean and nasty. And we're not going to be anything like that. We also want to when we listen to their story, it gives us an opportunity as advocates to highlight their strengths, help them recognize that. Because as you said, they have they've lived through tremendous things that most of us it would really put us down, but the fact that they're still going, they're finding ways to cope and survive. It's powerful for them to share that story with us, but very important for us to listen. We don't have all the answers, and certainly we don't have many answers or resources to offer up if we don't know their story.
0: I think the listening piece
1: certainly is tantamount to what we're
0: doing. I love the word curiosity I had Darlene Thomas the other day was on on here and she talked about there's nothing wrong with being a little nosy if you're being nosy for the right reasons, but we're wanting to dig in. It is very hard for a lot of folks to share their story. Mm-hmm. And so building that trust relationship, I think, is critical in those beginning, well, throughout, but but in the beginning, how do you begin to start to establish trust and to kind of tie the two things together that we were talking about in the very beginning of this conversation, but, but then this next piece, how do you begin to, honor each person wholly, you know, so not, oh, you're a victim of domestic violence and that defines everything about who you are or you're the ADHD person. That's going to, you know, trail through this whole conversation, I think. (laughs) But how do you also become culturally responsive, offer the support and then preserve that dignity? Because a lot of folks that are showing up have very different backgrounds than what we ourselves do. And so I think we're kind of like, I don't, I don't know. You know, what makes this person tick or I don't want to do anything that offends or I don't want to do anything. But if you can listen, if you can build the trust. I think building trust is sort of universal to a degree. You know, if you can build the trust and listen, you can cross a lot of
1: those cultural barriers. Right. Because you're listening to I think often when people tell their stories, even short stories like you and I talked about as we started and did the coming into the present exercise It's important to listen because sometimes people are talking about things that are most important and the priority to them. And that's very different than taking them through, again, I'm going to use those words cookie cutter, like a cookie cutter assessment or a cookie cutter intake. We have to do some of those things in order to offer up good supports to folks and resources. But it's important to listen to what's important to that person. So if they're talking about the place of faith that they go to, We have to make a mental note of, okay, that might be a good resource and support that we're going to use with this particular survivor who I'm working with. Watching and paying attention to a survivor who has children and what they do and what their patterns are when they're in shelter, you know, we have a very unique opportunity when folks are in shelter or in residence, so to speak, and we spend more time with them because we can see more about patterns of how they do things in their family. They're the expert on their family, not us. Right. And so just doing what we can to learn about people culturally. I think one important piece is to pick up on the groups that someone identifies with. So, We were talking earlier this morning, a big part of who I am, if you were to ask me to kind of list what are groups that you identify with, Appalachian, you know, that's a big part of who I am. It's a thread that runs strong through me. But when we listen to survivors and talk with them, what are pieces of them? Who and what do they identify? What groups? And that may not be the right question to ask, but observe that. You know, what do they talk about? What do they like? Just what do you notice? And it's not just about speaking. and li- It's also about watching and observing. And we have the opportunity to do that when people come to shelter and are in transitional housing services. We have that opportunity to watch and be present with them. Um, so it's important to watch and listen instead of telling people what to do and bossing people around.
0: Well, there's no fun in that, Stephanie.
1: We have to sort of do that. I have fun at that in my house yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But. You have
0: to have your outlet of that. Speaking of when you're talking about Appalachian, it sort of resonates with you. And I would imagine that's true of a lot of our, you know, shelter programs and the and the women that we serve. Right. Certainly. But sometimes you're going to get an advocate who really has no connection to that community or culture. Again, listen. Let the person who's in front of you be the expert on their own lives. Ask about it. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? When you say Appalachian, what kind of comes together? Give me those adjectives. Right. Like it's a really interesting exploration, you know, to kind of kind of a social ethnography that you can kind of do. And, That's right. Yeah. And I always encourage folks, too, this is not like you go through a training and certification and you're done learning. Get some books on it. Ask people, you know, what you need to read or what you need to kind of look at to give you a more robust idea of what maybe your very singular opinion might be of the Appalachian community or
1: whatever community that may be. And there's a lot of tools for advocates to use for that. Listen to some podcasts, right? Or look at, follow some social media groups about that. It, It doesn't have to be, you know, like... Let's go to the library and open up a journal or right. a book. Right, there's a lot of outlets, especially with podcasts now. So um, I would encourage folks to do that as well.
0: Yeah. So one thing that I this is going to throw you, but it's not really. It's not in your notes in the sure. conversations. But we can hone in our skill in, in advocacy and support one another of checking each other's you know bias or judgment, encouraging mm-hmm. people to listen, encourage people to build trust. We can do that. One of the things that I think happens in community settings, though, and I see this a, a lot actually in our own personal exit interviews at the at Greenhouse 17, the program mm-hmm. I work, is they sometimes don't always feel supported by the other women in the program. And too many suggestions on how to build a little bit more community cohesion. Because I think we're all, we all come from this society, right? We're all quick to make some snap judgments on folks. We're not at the best space of patience, right? In the middle of trauma and and tolerance of dealing with, you know, like, you know, we're a little all over the place. How do we sort of support the relationship amongst the women at the transitional housing or the shelter to be maybe a little more
1: gentle with one another? You are throwing me a bit of a curveball, and but I'm happy to give it. I've been thinking it a,
0: about it for 10 years, so I don't have an answer right. either, but yeah, give it a. I'm swirl. happy to
1: give it a shot. Okay. I think after folks, I'm going to use the environment or the setting of shelter. And when folks come in and they're at a place, they get to a place after they're settled in, crisis has maybe decreased a little bit. Some of those feelings of anxiety maybe have decreased a little bit sharing some about the world of the shelter and talking some about things that others may do that might get on your nerves, but how we work and we live in a space that's pretty tight and we have to share a lot of things. And the kids are really different and everybody has different things going on, but we have to do this to stay safe with one another. And so I think emphasizing the importance that we've got to come together and treat one another with respect because the safety is really important. We don't want somebody to leave because of another resident was not liking them or something like that. Just kind of going back to we're all here because we need to be safe. Yeah, And I think emphasizing that it's really difficult. Think about how challenging it is to just live in your own home with your own little family. Yes. And then we put to, you know, a group of adult survivors and we throw their kids into the mix. And then we throw in staff and advocates and everybody has to live. And when we live, there's going to be arguments and people are going to disagree. Like you fry your food with olive oil and you use lard. Yeah. Yeah. And you may not like that. Right. And so just kind of encouraging. We all got to make some compromises. Pick your battles. Yeah. Pick your battles while you're here, you know. Yeah. And But I think letting people know it's going to be normal that others might irritate you some. Or they don't live the same way you do. Or they don't keep the same level of cleanliness that you do. And put that out there. Letting people know and be prepared.
0: I think that might be the piece. I think you're absolutely right. It might not be that you're ever going to have this sort of, you know, smooth, we're all going to agree, we're all going to be kind of kumbaya-ish in the, in the shelter program. And as you said, that's not atypical of any other. You know, I, we have a few folks that work for us that were RAs in dorms. Same kind of stuff. You Absolutely. Know? And and we had a person who used to be on our board and he ran a hotel, you know, in, in Lexington. He was like, Oh my gosh, you should see the chaos at the hotel and how they leave rooms. And was, we have to keep remembering. We have an, a tendency sometimes to go, ah, oh, the women at shelter and you know, blah, 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 blah. They're just people. And we all do this, and people can be messy. And to navigate every little thing. Are you using olive oil? Are you using lard? That does tend to be some of the drama that can happen in a shelter program. But we do need to prepare. You know, how do you prepare folks to welcome to the shelter? So glad you're here. This is a tough road. So let's just kind of be open and transparent about it as opposed to pretend it's going to be blissful. And then you're caught off guard and like, what the heck was
1: this? Yeah. Right. I think it's about setting expectations. And. Emphasizing though, one thing we can guarantee you here is safety. Yes, yes, we can guarantee that, and that's why shelters, domestic violence programs across Kentucky are so important.
0: Yeah, we can guarantee that, and we try to show as much. You know, we we talked a few podcasts before, and I think sometimes we feel things are a little hokey, but. It is okay to show love and care for the people. Like I think sometimes we get in a professional world and I have to have this professional relationship, which is ethically, yes, of course. But it's but it's okay to show genuine kindness and care and love to people. I think sometimes we feel like, I don't know, oh we're two, our boundaries are, are not as solid as they should be. And there's that balance, but you can show love and care and kindness to someone, even if it's for that day. That day they're they're with us. And right. show them that respect.
1: Because if you were to ask survivors, say you were running or facilitating a group in shelter and you asked them that question we started out with this morning, think about the last two days and let's think about, share two things, two good things that happened, whatever that means for you. It may very well be that somebody, an advocate at program, within the program, was very kind and just listened. And I think you would hear that You would hear those kinds of things being shared. So compassion, that's what we need to be about. And it's it's hard when people you've got people living together and in a small space and you got to share a room with somebody and you don't get to sleep with your pillow that you normally do. All those things people miss. We just have to keep remembering and reminding them though about the safety. That's why you're here. That's what we're trying to accomplish. It's a short blip. It's a short blip. You Mm -hmm. can make it through it. Be encouraging.
0: I'm just going to insert or sprinkle in this quote. I I really liked it. And I never can pronounce her name. So maybe you can. But I love this. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Is it? Ananin, am I saying that right?
1: Yes, you are.
0: I saw a wonderful documentary on her and Henry Miller years ago. Really good. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something always to sort of keep in our mind. What is the lens that we're looking through? And our genuine intention is to see things as they're reporting to us. So again, listen, reflect.
1: And Ananin, this quote is so powerful. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And I do I want to elaborate on it just a moment because I think it's one of the main takeaways, if not the main the takeaway from this. And that is, you know, we grow up, we're raised by a family or by someone, and we have values that are shaped, beliefs that get shaped, whether we use the Lard. Or whether we use the olive oil, all those things. We have a
0: lot of judgment about that. We
1: yeah. got well, Yes, we got a lot of judgment about that. So one of the most important pieces for new advocates, new folks who are doing this work, is to remember that thing that we talk about, the golden rule. You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard people talk about the golden rule? Yes. You know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. Okay, there's some there's some weight to that, some importance to that. But the way we want to be treated is not necessarily the way everybody else lives or what their expectations are. You know, what I expect is not necessarily what Diane Fleet expects or Lisa Gabbard expects. So, you know, we have to remember that. People come to program for services and support, and we know very little about their story. So... Try to think and look at everybody holistically. I'm going to go back to the holistic piece. You know, what? who is this person? Who is this family? What's important to them? What's important to them is not necessarily what's in most important to me. Because we've got very different life stories. I love it.
0: I've I've had two epiphanies on this because I live that. You treat others as you want to be treated yourself. My intentions were good, and I had somebody call me out on my intentions, and it was it was not a nice thing, but it was needed. And I still am an intention sort of person, but if my intentions were always feeding what I thought was best, what I thought the correct action should be, what I, you know, was always sort of self-centered, I wasn't looking at the person across from me, you know, I wasn't asking what they were needing, I was just hoping they would give me grace to know that i was trying to you know what i mean it was really really helpful and then i also went to a leadership class this past year and we had to do like you know where do you fall on the spectrum and how do you <laughs> lead and you know all this kind of stuff and that was a big piece that came away too and i found out that a lot of my how i treated folks because it's how i wanted to be annoyed the bejesus out of a lot of people like i thought a lot of things that i was doing trying to be understanding and helpful and all this stuff was really kind of annoying to some because they just either wanted an answer, you know, or they wanted some concrete decision or they wanted to hold accountable the team where I was much more gentle. And sometimes gentle is not what the people needed. So anyways, those two things have really sort of popped in my mind. So I'm really
1: paying attention to, to the words that you just said. Well, and I think at the same time, I'm going to contradict myself a bit advocates especially when you're new coming into this field but for seasoned advocates as well also give ourselves some grace because this work is really hard and you talking about the word and topic of intention just we want to have good intentions but sometimes our intentions are good but they get in the way They get in the way because other people are looking through things from a different lens, especially survivors. We may think hurrying up and talking to them about where they're going to go when they leave shelter in 60 days and get housing. We may think that's what we need to be talking with them about. But in their minds, they're thinking, we got this going on, or my kid's sick, or you know, there's other priorities that they have in mind that are further down the list than the housing. And I know we have a limited amount of time with people. So that's why we try to talk about and do some of the cookie cutter things that we think we have to do. And we do need to do those. But it's important to ask. Just talk to people and ask and communicate. What do you need right now? What do you need today? It's perfect.
0: Yeah. I think we fall into that trap quite a bit. And as you said, with, with very good intentions, with knowing our time limitation, but always circling it back. And it can be a both and. What do you need today?
1: But we got to fill out this housing paper. That's too, right. Right? We could do both. And it's about finding that balance. And you okay. get better at that the, with the more experience you get under your belt, so to speak. That comes easier. But it, it, it's hard in the beginning. Yeah. I'm going to shift a little to trauma. Can you talk
0: a little bit about individual trauma versus collective and historical trauma?
1: Yeah. Individual trauma is when we kind of by ourselves or maybe even in our immediate family experiences something that threatens our being. It could be intimate partner violence. It could be a car accident we were in. It could be a natural disaster, like a hurricane or a tornado. It could be a medical procedure that was really rough. It could be being exposed to combat but it's something we went through individually, and it threatened our life, or it threatened the life of someone we love, someone we know, and the way that we lived. So a pretty serious thing that stays with you. It doesn't, uh, you know, it's not like something that is really small that you may have experienced in a day, but it's something major that threatened your life, and it sticks with you. Collective and historical trauma is something we don't talk about a lot, but many of the folks that we serve in programs and services have experienced collective and historical trauma. And so one of the, I can share a couple of examples with you. It's probably easier to just talk about examples, but when you are part of a group of people that you identify with, let's just say it that way, And that entire group is affected by something that's happened in the world. That can cause that entire group that you identify with to experience trauma and it can build over time. And so, an example, getting back to my example, I'll use is folks who are belong to a Native American tribe. They've been experiencing Lots of hurt, unjust, terrible acts of trauma for hundreds of years now in this country. And they feel those effects. And it's still going on. I mean, they've had land taken away from them. They have had their children in the past have been removed and Adopted to European folks that know nothing about tribal customs. Their kids have been taken away to schools that are supposed to be the right kind of schools because they think there's something wrong with the Native American schools. We can recall even recently at Standing Rock, news, pictures, descriptions, things on social media about people taking heavy-duty, powerful streams of water, hosing little kids down. Those are all pieces of trauma and things that have happened to that particular group, Native Americans. So it's not something that happened to just one person in that group, an individual trauma that they experienced. But they are living through things together as a people, and that piles up. It adds up over time. Um, and so when a group and we can use other groups, you know, there, there's a lot of different, um, you know, we could talk about women specifically, we could talk about African Americans and the black population and all the trauma that happens there, you know, years and years of unjust, unrighteous policies, um, that people have created that, contribute to making things just a lot more difficult to live life just because you are a member of a group that's those are some ways I would describe that historical or collective trauma
0: that was really heavy
1: (laughs) I know I'm sorry
0: no 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 no. I'm no I'm so glad you you went through that process and I think you know again if we're if we're really going to do good sort of solid you know work with folks we need to be able to kind of see their placement or where they where they identify, right, their placement and things. And we need to not ignore the historical as well as don't get too lasered into just the intimate partner violence. But again, look at that person as a whole and everything they bring in the room when they enter the room. And and a lot of that can be the cultural and the historical perspective. How there may be at a space to receive love and care and services, right? Mm -hmm. Because we talked a little bit about trust before, but if you have somebody in front of you who does not trust systems, I'm not trusting you with my story, not trusting you with my children. I'm just going to kind of sit here quietly as best I can and do what I need to do so that I can get this service, but I'm not going to open up because I have no trust. The frustration should not be on the for the advocate to go, she just won't come to group. She just won't, whatever. But the understanding of where is that coming from and how can we kind of extend continually a relationship or a branch to maybe begin to
1: slowly build that trust. That's so right. I mean, when someone's not talking with us in program, don't take it personally and don't think it's like a professional fail necessarily. Remember There's a lot of reasons why people may not want to share their stories. Fear that you're going to report something to Child Protective Services. You know, just so many reasons that people may not want to share with us. So it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. Then there's some things that people will share with strangers quite easily. Depends on every individual. But if they've been hurt by the system or have a reason to not trust the system, don't have the expectation that they're going to come in and just tell you everything.
0: I also think we probably need to be thoughtful to not promise that a system will respond appropriately because our experience with that system has been positive and you just don't get this. It, like it is there for you. Sometimes it's not. No. Again, the lesson might be maybe that system is not there for that person and we need to be thoughtful. We talked a little bit about that again when we were talking with Meg and we we're talking about protective orders. We're working with immigrant communities. We need to be thoughtful about that. Is that the safest system for someone to step in? Might be, might not, but don't just presume and jump in and then maybe cause harm down the road. Because if you're building trust and then that trust laps, you can do a world of damage for
1: that person to access and receive services down the road. Absolutely. And you want to be thinking about that. We don't want to be harmful. We want to be helpful. And uh, we had to be careful th- about not, you know, making sure we're not harmful, or having harmful policies or rules or those kinds of things. Yeah. When you were talking about individual trauma before,
0: one thing that combat I think certainly comes to play. But when you're talking about tornado, hurricane, usually it's a one time thing, right? It's a one time, you yeah, had tornado, one time thing, right? Disastrous, but one time, absolutely. Combat lots of traumas over a period of time, potentially mm-hmm. intimate partner violence. Lots of drama over a period of time, as well as we sometimes know that the women that come in our doors have had past relationships, family members that also might bring to this, and you have the historical. So understanding I'm shifting to distress, mm-hmm. but understanding distress and knowing for some people that heightened sense is is always on
1: due to the building of a continual stressful experience correct? Right. Okay. That's right. There are folks, you know, sometimes I often use an example, say you're driving along one day and whatever happens, you almost are in a a car accident. Maybe you almost run a stop sign or something. And you may feel like your heart or just your stomach kind of drops is what, it's that feeling that you have when you go down a big roller coaster and that's the adrenaline releasing. And hopefully you're like, okay, I'm safe now. There was no accident. And you start going along about your day. But as people are exposed repeatedly to trauma in the form of violence and other things you've talked about, um, family abuse, that go on and on and just never stop, people, those, you end up kind of, you adapt by always staying on high alert because that's what your body is starting to understand. There's a lot of issues. There's things to be fearful about. There's things to be scared about. And it's hard to come down from that. So many of the folks, by the time they get to the point that they're actually coming into and accessing shelter support, they've experienced quite a bit of trauma over and over. So it's important to understand that even though they're behind, they're in a program behind a locked gate, behind locked doors, with others who are there to keep them safe. They don't necessarily understand that those words alone are not going to make them feel safe because their body has been trained now to always be on alert, be ready, be ready to be a survivor and cope. So,
0: and one of the coping mechanisms too I think that a lot of folks use and it's something that we struggle with certainly as a program in response is is using substances. So a way of coping with that pain With that, you know, anxiety, with that needing to just numb and check out a Mm -hmm. little bit, sometimes can be substance use. And that sometimes clashes with our residential programming, right? Right.
1: Makes it difficult.
0: It makes it really difficult. And then you'll often see sort of the coercion by abuser to be using drugs Mm -hmm. and alcohol, which really kind of keeps that person under control and loses some options that that victim may have to reach out for help because they're dismissed a little bit due due to their substance use.
1: Right. And, um, you know, I'm a believer that we shouldn't do that because we need to make sure we're offering safety options, making safety available to all people. But, yeah, the substance use makes things more complicated, makes it more difficult sometimes to access services, get services. And I like to believe that within our domestic violence programs across Kentucky, We're a lot more understanding about that. But when you may come into contact, when the survivor comes into contact and a police officer or law enforcement officer meets them and they're under the influence, they may not believe what's going on. You know, and that substance use, it shouldn't. But it comes into play and impact in the judgments that will be made and the decisions that will be made and the actions that are taken, not only by law enforcement, but by judges by attorneys, counselors, other systems like child welfare systems. It's like the, in, the intimate partner violence is happening. There's no doubt about it. But for some reason, people will latch on to that use. And that's what they get. That's what their priority becomes about thinking about this person. But we need them to think about the violence and do something about that.
0: Yeah, the, the action sort of falls in upon the victim, right? That we, as you said, we hone in on the substance use and the violence sometimes is overlooked or forgotten or minimized. And we sometimes use the substance use as causal, right? Like, well, you know, not that it's ever okay to be violent, but her behavior is this. And and we begin to align a little bit with the abusive partner yeah. with, with that situation. I know we're getting really ready to about to wrap up. But I wanted to talk a, a bit about programs being responsive to that. And you mentioned a little bit in here, parallel, what was the term that you use? Parallel process. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just sort of touch on that before we close up?
1: Yeah. Parallel process, that may seem all kinds of fancy, but it it's not. It's, it's, it's really not. It's a fairly simple concept. And it is, just to kind of use an example, how my boss and how my agency treats me, and interacts with me and behaves with me will often carry on down and trickle to how I respond to the survivors I'm employed to serve. So if you give me a lot of rules as an employee and, you know, treat, you know, do things a certain way, a specific way, then I think that's how I'm going to work with survivors. Whether you think that or not, it's kind of what happens because if you're being treated a certain way every day, day in and day out, it's going to carry over to survivors. And we, you know, you have to think about as an agency, as an overall program, you know, what do we want to look like and make sure that that is integrated at all different levels of the program. And so if we ask Employees to tell their stories instead of just, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Are you following this policy? You know, did you get all your reports done? Those things are important. Like you said, they've got to be done. However, we also need to make sure employees and staff and advocates have chances to reflect safely with their supervisors, with agency leaders, and do that. And so by us giving them that safe space, hopefully when they're working with survivors, that will trickle down and that process will be used with them as well. But now I can also go uh, backwards a little. And what I mean by that is as advocates, you're exposed to so many traumas, so many stories. And it's not just from the survivors we work with, but the systems we work with are really difficult too. And we have to remember that the trauma that they share with us, and those stories that we absorb and listen to as advocates, we take those things too, and it goes. It works upward too. The way we interact with their supervisors, the way we interact with the agency, our coworkers. So, if you've just sat all day long through several emergency protective order hearings, domestic violence order hearings, and it's been a tough day where you had to deal with a tough courtroom. And things didn't go well. When you go back to the shelter that afternoon for the three o'clock staff meeting, you may very well be grumpy, a Debbie Downer, because it's been a hard day. And so those the parallel process kind of goes in both directions. Things we experience with clients and survivors, they affect us. And how we work and how we're affected affects the overall agency, too. So it goes in both directions. Um, And programs, domestic violence programs and shelters are absorbing a tremendous amount of um, trauma. It's very unique. There's not a lot of other places that are doing this kind of thing.
0: We also have a little bit of our collective and historical trauma, right? We're Absolutely. sometimes fighting those systems. and so All the time. All the time. And so those things can sort of trickle in. So I just wanted to end, I guess, a little bit then with just as Stephanie sort of led in the very beginning, it's critical that we constantly do mindfulness, that we support each other, that we build relationships amongst ourselves, our advocates and our, our administrative kind of leadership to make sure we have space to share and to dialogue with one another and to also kind of kick back and go, you've been stressed a little bit. You might need to take a little break. You had a hard day. It's okay to right. check out occasionally. Now, if you're checking out all the time.
1: Maybe not so good. No, no. we can't do that because right. we're right. we're there to do this other thing. Right. We've we've taken that role and accepted yep. it. So that's that's what we signed up for. That's
0: right. And we had established. We're getting back into it. It's been a while, but Tisha Pletcher was on another you know podcast a little bit ago, and so and she's talking about secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, but she had established in our program a tree of trust, which sounds a little hokey as well, but tree of trust was. When the staff is all grumbling amongst each other rather than continue, you know, that can really blow, right? It can keep going and going. You can call a tree of trust. And we have to have some really frank and open discussion. We go outside because nature's good, right? Get outside. And we actually kind of... Hash it out respectfully so we can move on because otherwise you start clicking and pitting and you know against one another and all this stuff. And so, you know, how you handled this situation or how you show up every day or you're always late to work or I didn't like how you answered that crisis line, let's just get it out there. And so, we circle around a tree and and we do a tree of
1: trust. I love that, I love the tree of trust and it's needed. And the other thing, and I'm sure you all have talked about this, but. Survivors pick up on all the nuances of the dynamics within a program. They do. I mean, think about the expertise they have in reading their the abuser. Yes. And
0: they're the most perceptive of they are the
1: most perceptive and smart and intelligent. And so they cue into all of that and those dynamics that are going on in program. But I think it sounds like you've got a good method there for your program to staff to try to work through some things and we have to we have to confront one another a bit and just be like okay what's this really about right and let's get on with the work oh you need me to acknowledge that it's been a hard day for you I should have done that already without you having to throw a fit that's right and I'm sorry
0: but I'll, yeah you know a lot of apologies and a lot of openness so yeah, yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening in. This has been KCADV Certification Series Module 5. There's going to be another part to this section, but you've been listening to Stephanie Ratliff and I'm Diane Fleet, and thank you so much for joining us today.